Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. In recent years, Australian politicians have discussed foreign affairs in the media with great passion and frequency. So it seemed a foregone conclusion that the election of a Labor government in May 2022 would herald a new direction in foreign policy. Foreign Minister Penny Wong certainly reinforced this perception by undertaking a Pacific tour days after the election and by becoming the first Australian minister to visit China since 2019. In this week's ABR podcast, James Curran considers the response of Asia-Pacific nations to the government's decision to retain AUKUS, the major foreign affairs initiative of the Morrison government. Curran examines Wong's attempts to reposition Australia as a central part of the region, not an outsider looking in, given this new alliance with America and the United Kingdom. It is, Curran argues, a necessarily complex message. James Curran is Professor of Modern History at Sydney University and Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Australian Financial Review. His article, Exorcising the Ghosts, Australia's New Old Foreign Policy, appears in the April issue of ABR. Thanks very much for joining this ABR podcast. My name is James Curran. I'm a Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney and I'm a foreign affairs columnist for the Australian Financial Review. My most recent book is uh, Australia's China Odyssey, From Euphoria to Fear, which was published last year by New South Press, and I'm beginning work this year on Paul Keating's foreign policy. Today I'm reading from my article, which is a feature in the forthcoming issue of ABR. It's called Exercising the Ghosts, Australia's New Old Foreign Policy. Nearly 50 years ago, when President Lyndon Baines Johnson decided to begin scaling down Washington's disastrous war in Vietnam, the Australian Minister for the Air, Peter Howson, confided to his diary that, he said, to my mind, it's the first step of the Americans moving out of Southeast Asia, and within a few years, there'll be no white faces on the Asian mainland. Johnson's decision, followed by Richard Nixon's statement in July 1969 on the tiny Pacific island of Guam, that the United States would never again get involved in a land war in Asia, seemed to spell American withdrawal from the region, or as a then head of external affairs in Canberra put it, from west of Hawaii. It was geopolitical shorthand that sent shivers down the spine of officials in Canberra, especially because it came so soon after the British government's decision to wind back its military presence in Asia, or what London referred to as East of Suez. One Australian newspaper likened Whitehall's decision to the serving of what it called a Far East death warrant. Taken together, it appeared that Canberra's Cold War nirvana, that is, having its great and powerful friends engaged in the region to keep the threat of Asian communism as far away as possible, was coming to an end. Australia was on its own. It would have to fend for itself as never before. And as the record shows, it did. When it was clear in the 1970s that neither Europe nor the United States offered Australia a sense of security, the country energetically embraced the countries and cultures of Asia in a new way. 
The process had its agonies. Who can forget Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew's warning in 1980 that Australia was destined to be the poor white trash of Asia? But it did also prompt a period of as yet unrivalled creative Australian diplomacy. Yet even after more than half a century of engagement with Asia, the fear that Australia's white heritage continues to make it the odd one out in the region persists. This despite the end of white Australia, the adoption of multiculturalism as the national orthodoxy of the country's self-definition, not to mention a range of initiatives, among them the creation of APEC, Cambodia Peace Agreement, membership of the East Asia Summit and countless free trade agreements with regional countries, all of which have been so central to successive governments' foreign policies. In late 2022, Labor Foreign Minister Penny Wong lamented that over the previous decade of coalition governments, she said, quote, we allowed old narratives to re-emerge that positioned Australia as the other. Where from the late 19th century, of course, Asia had been the other for Australia, its psychological nemesis, if you like, Wong was now lamenting that Australia had again been placed on the wrong side of that cultural equation. Now, I believe that unpacking that one line from the Foreign Minister is crucial to understanding the unfolding story of the Albanese government's foreign policy. The older narrative to which Wong refers was revealed most powerfully in the surrealistic afternoon light bathing Scott Morrison's trip to Cornwall in June 2021 to hold preliminary discussions on what would become the AUKUS Agreement. Like Robert Menzies, Morrison sought warmth with great and powerful friends at a time of great uncertainty in the region. And like Menzies, he chose to stop in Asia only briefly along the way. Under the auspices of AUKUS, which has recently just been announced in San Diego, of course, Australia cooperates with Britain and the United States to build a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines and cooperate on a whole range of other security-related initiatives. Conceived initially by former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, the arrangement has nevertheless been backed with as much, if not more, enthusiasm by Labor Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and especially Defence Minister Richard Miles. Albanese has even told The Guardian's Catherine Murphy earlier this year that had Labor been in office at the time, he too would have initiated AUKUS. Now, Labor leaders, as we know, are wont to credit their own party with conceiving what later became ANZUS in the crucible of World War II when John Curtin looked to America, a call of expediency driven primarily by survivalist anxiety. There was nothing in Curtin's wartime statements which suggested he envisaged a long-term security relationship with the United States. But my point is that now Albanese is clearly at pains to convince voters that he is every bit the co-author of AUKUS. So here is this scion of Labor's left who once decried the US war on Iraq, now coming to render homage at the altar of the alliance. The initial reaction to the AUKUS announcement from some regional countries, especially in Indonesia and Malaysia, was swift, and it's ongoing. Already piqued by the lack of consultation from Canberra, they expressed concern about AUKUS's potential to feed a regional arms race and its implications for Australia's obligations under the nuclear non-proliferation regime. For some in the region, it's added more turbulence to already choppy strategic waters, and the deal seemed the return of an older story that when a threat from the north disturbs Australia's psychological equilibrium, its strategic impulse is to huddle in the collective bosom of London and Washington. Since the federal election in May 2022, it's been a key ambition of Foreign Minister Wong to counter this older narrative in regional perceptions of where Australia stands. The Foreign Minister wants AUKUS, 
but not the perceived cultural opprobrium that comes with it. If former Whitlam Immigration Minister Al Grasby said in 1973, give me a shovel and I'll bury once and for all the white Australia policy, Wong appears to be on a personal mission to explode the myth that somehow Australia still doesn't belong in Asia. Talking about Australian multiculturalism abroad, she said recently in an interview, she said that that talk of Australian multiculturalism confounds negative narratives about us. And the lodestar of her approach has been to consistently stress that Australia supports ASEAN centrality, that it comes to listen to the region, not to lecture it. The problem, however, is that at the same time, the government not only defends AUKUS, but projects its importance in the rhetoric of shared values with America and Britain. That doesn't play well, necessarily, in Southeast Asia. Wong's mission is to keep those tensions between the dominance of AUKUS in Australia's strategic imagination and the rhetoric of reassurance required for regional audience manageable. Wong began this task very early on in her term as Foreign Minister. Indeed, she began it in Fiji at the end of May 2022. That was a visit, of course, which took place only days after the election win for the Labor Party, only days after she had returned from Tokyo for the initial Quad Leaders meeting with Anthony Albanese. And of course it was taking place against the backdrop of a concerted Chinese attempt to secure a 10-nation Pacific security agreement. That, of course, as we know, followed the Chinese deal with the government of the Solomon Islands to maintain security there. Wong said in Fiji in May 2022, she said Canberra would consistently proclaim to its neighbours and others, she said, Australia's full identity. She explained that the 270 ancestries represented in the Australian population gives Canberra, quote, the capacity to reach into every corner of the world. It was, she added, a vast untapped power in modern Australia. Wong also declared the adoption of a First Nations approach to foreign policy, a move which she later defined as having both positive and defensive elements. Positive in reaching out to a region, she said, where traditional power structures and traditional owners are a very important part of cultures. Defensive, she added, so as to remind people, as she put it, that when they dismiss us, of the fullness of who we are. Now, not since the Whitlam and Keating Labor governments has Canberra made so clear a connection between its Indigenous heritage, its multicultural reality and foreign policy posture. It isn't clear yet what the policy implications are for a First Nations foreign policy. Indeed, it's not clear that the term has been properly thought through. But Wong has been at pains to bring these two sides of Australian foreign and defence policy together, to blend the older US alliance with a new patchwork quilt of regional coalitions. The attempt to do so was also on show late last year during a major speech in Washington. And that was when Wong discussed the Quad, albeit to a sympathetic audience at the Carnegie Institute for International Peace. The Quad, remember, is the grouping of Australia, the United States, Japan and India. There was no whiff of containment on the Foreign Minister's breath when she talked about the Quad in that speech. Indeed, her concern was to ensure, she said, that the Quad works alongside ASEAN and other regional architecture to advance our shared interests with the countries of Southeast Asia. And while the US alliance system remains central, for Wong, Australia's relationship with Washington and its regional engagement are mutually reinforcing. Burnishing her credentials in Southeast Asian eyes, Wong pressed the Americans to do more to reduce the risk of conflict with China and make economic engagement in the region a core alliance priority, as she put it. Her remarks reflected, of course, the reality that America's Asian economic footprint remains patchy. 
Its Indo-Pacific economic framework is a start, but its denial of market access to Southeast Asian partners rankles. And there's continued disquiet over Washington's absence, unlikely to be reversed anytime soon, from the region's bigger multilateral trade arrangements like the CPTPP. Conscious of Southeast Asian countries' long-standing distaste for great power rivalry in the region, Wong stressed that Canberra, she said, it's meeting the region where it is. And I think that's a significant message since Southeast Asian capitals have consistently said they don't wish to become pawns in US-China strategic competition. Wong's strategy is necessarily complex. This new old Australian foreign policy, if you like, which attempts to weave the US alliance with new regional coalitions and a deepening relationship with Japan, will face some headwinds. Some Southeast Asian countries still raise more than one eyebrow over the Quad and AUKUS. And, as we can see, it will be AUKUS that dominates debates in Australian foreign and defence policy for the foreseeable future. As we've just seen, Prime Minister Albanese is returning from San Diego for the announcement of AUKUS, which he did alongside President Joe Biden and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. There is now a three-phase plan to deliver Australia nuclear-powered submarines. Now, the politics, as we saw in San Diego, for all three leaders will be pitch perfect. Indeed, many of them gave what might only be described as domestic political stump speeches. We saw, too, that the occasion was heavy in symbolism, high on the rhetoric of brothers in arms, high on the rhetoric of freedom and democracy and the bunting that came with it. But the questions will be central, whether the path chosen is credible and affordable and whether AUKUS does anything to alleviate underlying concerns about a capability gap in Australia's defence when its existing Collins-class submarines retire. We are, as the plan unveiled in San Diego suggests, to get three Virginia-class submarines from the United States to fill that capability gap. But the reality is that none of these leaders will ever have to be held accountable for what will likely be major slippages in delivery, let alone cost blowouts over the longer term. The saving grace, of course, is that ASEAN leaders have substantial areas of focus of their own this year other than on the AUKUS announcement. These include the ongoing strife and instability in Myanmar and, of course, supporting Indonesia's ambitions for an activist role in its chairing of ASEAN throughout this calendar year. But it might be, too, that Foreign Minister Wong doesn't wish yet to either confront Miles, the Defence Minister in Cabinet, or to argue against this policy, AUKUS, which is not only running strong but has firm bureaucratic backing. AUKUS is not yet causing Albanese embarrassment here or in Washington, but it does have the potential to do so, especially should the Defence Department's less-than-glittering record in procurement and production affect this project too, and unless, as I've argued recently in my columns in the Australian Financial Review, there is a political change in Washington, perhaps after the next presidential election or the one after that, where a Republican president doesn't see the importance of AUKUS as does Joe Biden. The government talks a big game in delivering on AUKUS as a whole-of-nation effort, but the pitfalls ahead are many. And like its predecessor, the Albanese government has done little, if anything, to explain to the general public how it is all meant to work. Never has so much been so meagerly explained by so few. Wong's effort to exercise the ghosts of colonialism have also had their more curious manifestations. It's not clear why, for example, during a visit to London just this last January, The Foreign Minister believed it necessary to remind the British of their own colonial legacy in the Pacific, as if it continued to be an albatross around London's strategic neck. 
It flew in the face of decades of decolonisation and the fact that Britain was genuinely multicultural well before Australia adopted the term as its definition of national community. Little wonder that this effort to score trifling points at Britain's expense left its Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, himself of African background, somewhat bemused. There is then, I think, a certain defensiveness emerging here, not only from the optics of AUKUS and what it portends for Australia's strategic future, but from Wong's determination to make up for what she believes was a decade of drift in how Australia's international image is being presented. Her concern is clearly that through policies enacted by Morrison, Canberra was starting to once more be identified with policies of the 1950s. It's not a burden Miss Wong wishes to see Australia shoulder now. Because at the height of the Cold War, that was indeed a load that Australia carried, and it was an approach that some in the region, such as Indonesian President Sukarno, saw straight through, particularly when he accused Canberra of acting, alongside Britain and the United States, in what he called a neo-imperialist plot to encircle Indonesia at the time of Malaysia's creation in 1963. This is where AUKUS could be problematic for Australia insofar as British participation is concerned. In September 1964, during that very crisis with Jakarta over its confrontation towards Malaysia, Canberra had to insist that London not authorise the return passage of a British aircraft carrier, HMS Victorious, through the Sunda Straits, lest its presence further inflame Indonesian ire. Of course, one has to recognise the strategic equation has changed fundamentally from that era. These are different worlds. If the China threat narrative of the Cold War was shown to be somewhat artificial, it is the centrepiece now, and for good reason. China might have dropped its wolf warrior diplomacy for the moment, but its reactions to criticisms from abroad remain sharply ideological. Furthermore, its nationalism flexes worrying strategic muscles that continue to challenge the strategic equilibrium. In her first substantial interview and profile as Foreign Minister, which she gave just last month to the Australian Financial Review, to Andrew Tillett, Penny Wong hinted, though she didn't say so explicitly, that her emphasis on multiculturalism and a First Nations heritage was aimed at countering Chinese whispers that Australia's white British heritage makes it still a regional oddity. These tussles over narrative suggest that, like it or not, we are now very much in a new Cold War, and Canberra might find it increasingly tricky to speak one language to Southeast Asia and another to its American ally. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.